Notes are in the bulletin. Title of this morning's message is Christ came into the world to save sinners just like you and me. Christ came into the world to save sinners just like you and me. We talked before as we were introducing the letter of Timothy that unlike some of his other epistles, because Paul had spent three years ministering at Ephesus because he had, according to his own words, taught to them house by house, day by day, in public and in private, teaching them the whole counsel of God. Because of that apostolic foundation, he doesn't lay the foundation of the gospel that he so often does, as in, say, Ephesians or Romans or 1 Corinthians. And yet, today's passage is all about the gospel. Even though he doesn't lay that foundation, he still can't go long without talking about the gospel. He can't go very far without the gospel coming to mind. And so it should be a great joy as we look at the power of the gospel. And I had the blessing this summer of going to a conference in Louisville where a speaker used this text. And the question he asked, I want to pose to you, which is how big or how powerful is your gospel? How powerful is it? How far can it reach? Whom can it save? Because Paul is, is going to unpack just how much of a wretch he was. He's going to call himself the first or chief of sinners. And so we're going to hopefully have our eyes opened wide to the power, the magnitude, and the scope of the gospel. But let's first read our text. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear God, as we turn to your word, um, we want to be dazzled by your gospel. We want to marvel at your grace. And so we know that we need eyes to see and ears to hear. And so Lord, um, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look through this text, we're going to break it into four points about the gospel. Four points about the gospel. The first being gospel power. Gospel power. Some commentators think that Paul is sort of taking an aside here. We've been, after all, talking about Paul's charge to Timothy. He's left him in Ephesus, he said back in verse 3 of chapter 1. He told him to remain when he was going to Macedonia that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so last week we talked about these novelties, 
these distractions that can eventually become full-blown heresies. Although at this state, in chapter 1, he doesn't feel the need to name the people involved, as he will later. And as he's talking about that, we ended our last section as Paul feels the need to talk about the rightful use of the law. Apparently these false teachers were going to genealogies and Bible codes and things in the Old Testament, and Paul doesn't want them to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so he says, but the law is good and right if it is used lawfully. And then pick it up in verse 11. In accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so what Paul is saying is this right understanding of the law, this right use of the law, is fitting, is in keeping with the gospel with which he has been entrusted. And then it is though... Paul can't just mention the gospel there in verse 11 without getting completely sidetracked into the gospel. Um, I heard a preacher say it's kind of like when you're driving along in your car and your song comes on the radio. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, hey, that's my song. And all of a sudden, you're just transported back in your mind to wherever you were when you listened to this song. And it's just everything else you're thinking about flies out of your mind as, as you're just transfixed by this song and all that stirs up in you. And it's as though Paul, in verse 11, in just mentioning his apostleship, and mentioning his gospel, just, just has to keep going. He's got to sing this song. He's, he's got to speak about the gospel, and it's going to end in a doxology. In the middle of the first chapter, he's going to have a doxology, because he's just going to get so excited about the gospel. And it starts with a look at the gospel power. Gospel power. We're going to see three things. Paul's former condition... Paul's present salvation and Paul's apostolic commission. And this passage starts with Paul being thankful, praising God. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And so I know that many of you are familiar with Paul's past, but turn back to Acts chapter 7. And we're going to do a little review of the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul is marveled at what God saved him from. Now you're familiar with Paul because he wrote the majority of the New Testament letters. He was a very different man when he went by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 58... The stoning of Stephen is where Paul, or Saul rather, is introduced. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city, that's Stephen, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. So the first time Saul becomes Paul is introduced, he's at a murder, a mob murder. And he approves, he applauds, he's helping out. Hey, I'll hold your coats so you can go stone Stephen. That's who, that's who Saul was. And then we pick it up a little further in Acts 9. Acts 9. 
Paul, Paul develops his, just, he starts off as a coat holder, but he's, he's an up-and-comer. He's a mover and a shaker, and pretty soon he's got his own persecuting ministry going. Um, he's rising in the ranks of persecution. And in Acts 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So chapter 7, he's a coat holder. Now he's got his own ministry. And he is off breathing murder and threats against the disciples of the Lord. This is the man whom the Lord saved. Um, this, you, could, you could almost call him a terrorist, persecutor. The least likely person you could imagine getting saved is, is Saul, and yet the gospel saves him. So Paul's former conditioner, he, condition, he says he was a blasphemer, which means he was saying blasphemous things about the Lord, cursing the Lord. He was a persecutor. He was killing Christians. He was arresting them. He's an insolent opponent. And thankfully, the Lord did not leave him there. And so in this passage, Paul praises God for his present salvation. That was his former condition, his present salvation. Looking back in Acts, I mean, not in Acts, sorry, back in 1 Timothy. Um, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he thanks our Lord for the following things because he's been mercied. Literally in the Greek, he just, I was mercied. Amen. I've been mercied. Hopefully you've been mercied. Paul was mercied. And the word for abundant grace is literally hyperabundant. Um, Paul likes to take the word, the, the prefix hyper or hupo and add it to things, make up words. And he does that here with superabundant, maybe grace would be a way of saying it. Paul is again marveling at this superabundant grace that he received in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, Paul is stating that the faith that he used to believe, the love that he has to the Lord, was a gift of the Lord. That's what the text says. God's grace overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I received a grace because God gave me love for him and faith towards him. But turn back to uh, Acts chapter 9. We're going to read about how that exactly happened. How did the Lord mercy him? How did the Lord bring him to salvation? Acts chapter 9 again, picking it up in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Jump down to verse 20. This is after his eyes have been opened. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. It's a pretty big shift from verse 1 to verse 20. That doesn't stop there. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not, has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And then he goes to Jerusalem. Pick it up in verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. See, Paul's conversion was so unlikely, so dramatic, that even the church didn't believe it. Even the church didn't believe it. And as this comes back to that notion of how big is your gospel? Is your gospel big enough to save someone like Paul? Is your, is your gospel big enough to save someone on death row? Is your gospel big enough to save the person you've told the gospel to 15 times and told you to get lost? Paul went from the beginning of chapter 9, breathing out threats and murder and hostility, trying to arrest the Christians, to boldly proclaiming Jesus as Christ. And it's all because of the encounter that he had with the Lord that just devastated him. The gospel killed him and gave him life. And he was blinded and he was given eyes to see. And that, that was a salvation that he experienced. And it's ongoing, he says, back in 1 Timothy. He said that the Lord is strengthening me day by day with superabundant grace and mercy, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This, this is why Paul is so amazed. It's who he was, the chief, the worstest of sinners. That's another word Paul invents, the worstest. And um, he, he does it all the time. And this superabundant grace from who he was to who he is. And it doesn't just stop there. It's not just that the Lord took this persecutor, this blasphemer, and saved him. He did that, but he also used now using him for ministry, authoring a lot of the New Testament. And that story is in Acts 26. We turn there. We're going to get Paul's backstory here. In Acts 26... The Apostle Paul is arrested and he gives his defense before King Agrippa. And he's going to recount some of what we just read, but he's also going to emphasize his apostolic commissioning before King Agrippa. Acts 26, we'll pick it up in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today 
against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in a raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there's Paul's commissioning. There's the ministry the Lord has for him. Not only can the Lord save murdering, threat-breathing, zealous terrorists, not only can he save them, he can, he can give them ministry. Not only can he bring them onto his team, they can become star players on the Lord's team. Re just read on. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So that's Paul's defense before King Agrippa. That he was a Pharisee, he was a persecutor, he gave the thumbs up when the Christians were killed and that the Lord encountered him on the road to Damascus shattered his world and then gave him a ministry to perform and that's the very ministry Paul is performing and that's the power of the gospel the gospel can take anybody there is nobody too far from God there's nobody too small the gospel cannot save. There sadly are many people too great, too wise, too powerful for the gospel. But there's no one too small, no one too little, no one too dirty, no one too sinful to be saved. Sadly, there are many too righteous in their own eyes. That is the gospel power. 
And next, we have the gospel truth back in 1 Timothy. Gospel truth. And here we come across the first of five trustworthy sayings. It's verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. And this saying, this is a trustworthy saying, is, is a phrase that occurs five times in the pastoral epistles. Um, once more in, in 1 Timothy 4.9, in Titus 3.8, in 2 Timothy 2.2, oh, and I, I missed one, in 1 Timothy 3.1. And we'll get to them progressively. And they occur nowhere else, this phrase, trustworthy saying, is unique to these three books of the Bible. And if you remember from two weeks ago in our introduction, we covered this to some degree, that what this appears to be is an early Christian confessional statement. Um, the early church, not having a written New Testament, or maybe a book or two of the New Testament, but not having a printing press, their own copies, were memorizing, were putting in well-said, pithy statements, gospel truth. That's what these faithful sayings are. The early church was already trying to guard the truth. And that's a good point for us to learn. We're not going to hold on to what we don't guard. We're not going to protect what we don't know. And the second we begin to assume the gospel, the second we begin to assume truth, we will start to lose truth. And so we, we get this pattern from the earliest days of the church. We're guarding the truth. We're memorizing the truth. We are finding ways to say the truth that are well said. And this is the pattern that the church statements of faith grow from, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, or other confessions where Christians have gotten together and said, look, this matters. And we need to find ways to declare the truth that are easy to understand and simple and yet accurate. And so here is one of them. And the statement that the early church had said that Paul is affirming by saying that it's trustworthy, he's saying that it's a faithful representation of God's message, is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds on his own addition of whom I am the foremost. So there it is. One little sentence. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And yet it is a deeply profound statement. It really encapsulates and summarizes the heart of the gospel. And so we're going to look at it a piece at a time. And it starts with Christ Jesus. And, and as Christians, we can so quickly brush over Christ as if it were Jesus' you know, last name. Um, it's a title. And in fact, if you've been paying attention in 1 Timothy, it's so far always occurred in this order. Not Jesus Christ, but Christ Jesus. Christos, Christ, is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah, or Messiah, which is Hebrew for the English anointed or anointed one. So they are interchangeable. Christ, Messiah, and anointed are Greek, Hebrew, and English for the same thing. And when we were back in Psalm 2, we talked about this some, that the Lord had promised to send an anointed one. And along the way, there were lesser anointed ones. David was the Lord's anointed. Saul was the Lord's anointed. And yet when Jesus comes along, he so much encapsulates this anointed one that the title just be, sort of becomes his. B.B. Um, Warfield says, it has become the peculiar property of Jesus who is thought of as so indisputably the Messiah 
that the title Messiah has become his name. See, after Jesus shows up, he's just the Messiah. There's no longer this Messiah. He's the Messiah. And the title just sort of gets affixed to his name. He is everything that Messiah was pointing towards. And so this assumes then some knowledge of the Old Testament, this prediction. This assumes, this statement assumes you have some understanding of who's the anointed. Well, we've seen some of the passages in Psalm 2 that talk about the Lord's anointed. And so as we're unpacking the gospel, explaining that, you know, long ago God promised to send a Savior, to send someone, to send his Son. And that Jesus, by virtue of being the Christ, is that one. And next we see that Christ Jesus came into the world. Now this phrase, came into the world, is unique to this passage and the Gospel of John. It occurs six times in the Gospel of John and nowhere else in the New Testament. And so to try to get at what they were saying by this, I'm just going to read to you a few of the passages from John because the emphasis here is of Christ's incarnation and his pre-existence. The emphasis of coming into the world is on incarnation and pre-existence. John 1, 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John 3, 16. 3, 19, sorry. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Or at the resurrection of Lazarus, John eleven twenty seven, she said to him, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And probably even more clearly, John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am telling the world, now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And then standing before Pilate, Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So it's always the picture of Jesus leaving his father's abode, leaving heaven, and entering into this world, and by virtue of entering into the world, taking on human flesh. Um, one commentator said, This uniform usage in John's gospel which is the only other place in the New Testament where the expression is found, demonstrates that the concept of pre-existence and incarnation and this earthly work are in view. So this is a little short sentence, and yet it's packed full with gospel truth and gospel theology. So Christ Jesus, the anointed one, the one predicted in this Old Testament scriptures, came into the world, leaving heaven in his pre-existence, taking on human flesh. And why did he come into the world? Why did he enter into our existence? Well, the good news is to save sinners. To save sinners. Came into the world to save sinners. And this is why I was saying earlier, there are some people too righteous for the gospel. Because if you aren't recognizing that you are a sinner, then you will be a very hard person indeed to save. And this links back to Paul talking just previously about the right use of the law. Go, go back with me to verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. 
And then he goes on to give a big list of sin. And what Paul is saying is, the law is not some principle to govern the life of the New Testament believer, but rather the law is to drive people to Christ, as, as Paul said in Galatians. To convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment as the Holy Spirit applies it to men's hearts. And so, here, this links in that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He, he didn't come into the world to give sinners a better life. He didn't come into the world primarily to help your marriage. He didn't come in primarily to, to make you feel better about yourself. Those things may happen, will usually happen as people grow in the grace of the gospel. But he came primarily to save sinners. He was on a rescue mission. And, and the early church got this. And I just get concerned sometimes when y you see gospel presentations where Jesus has primarily come in as, as a friend. Jesus has primarily come in um, to give your life meaning. These things are true, but the heart of the gospel is payment for sin, redemption, release from the claims of the law, that sinners need saving. Which means, again, if we're going to proclaim the gospel, we've got to use the law to convict of sin. Um, one of the things, if you remember from the Way of the Master series that I liked, was how they used the law to convict, to get people to see their need for Christ. Because until someone realizes the law has a claim over them, until you realize that you stand guilty before a just, holy, and provoked God, you're not going to look for a cure. But the whole reason Christ Jesus came into the world was to save sinners. And of course, this assumes how he saved sinners. And he did so by giving himself freely on the cross on our behalf taking our sins upon himself, bearing the wrath of his father and dying, and then being resurrected, vindicated into life three days later. That, that is the gospel. The gospel is about the substitute who came in and, and paid your penalty, paid my penalty. He left his abode in heaven. He took on human flesh. And the emphasis of this entering into the world is it's not just the emphasis on change in location from heaven to earth, but by virtue of the sinfulness of the world, it's also a, a descent, but a change of state and moral and spiritual environment. Jesus went from a place where he was praised, glorified, worshipped, to a place where he was spat upon, ignored, mistreated, Jesus went from perfect fellowship with his father to crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the heart of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And, and it's important for us not to lose sight that that is the heart of the gospel. There are so many other blessings that come with the gospel. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. And so yes, knowing Jesus Christ will give you peace and joy but the heart of the gospel is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's why I love that new song we've introduced, the gospel song. We, we can't lose sight of that. Because what we major on, those who watch us and our children will think that's the major thing. And we've got to major on the gospel. Because that is the central thing. And I just think it's marvelous that the first of these five trustworthy statements is an encapsulation of gospel truth. And then, what's important, point D, 
of whom I am foremost, that Paul personalizes the gospel. And that might be the danger for some sitting here today. We know lots of things about the gospel. We could accurately affirm the gospel. We could, you know, write it down and diagram it and bullet point it. But until the gospel is pointed at you instead of those out there, until the gospel has you in its crosshairs, until you realize that you are a sinner, that you need saving, until you feel the weight and the conviction of the law, like Paul does here, well, the gospel may not have done its work on you. The gospel is for those who are out there, but first and foremost, it's for us in here. Do, do we own this? Is our heart cried, has our heart cried out for a savior? Has our heart felt the weight of sin? Do we view ourselves as what Paul would say here, the worst of sinners, yet saved by grace? Or do we tempted to think we're pretty good people, all things considered? And yes, I need Jesus to help out, but you know, I've got it pretty much together. Not like those people down the street. Now, Paul doesn't see that at all. He puts himself in the worst possible slot. I'm, I'm the worst person, and it might be pointless to try to get in a discussion over who's worst, but, you know, we're, we're over this way on the scale. There's no attempt to try to, you know, well, he's a very moral person, and you know, I'm sure Paul was to some degree, but he sees his sin. He doesn't minimize it. Because the gospel has, has broken down his walls, and Christ has taken his heart captive. He is a new man. And it's important that the gospel has its way with us. That we have exercised our faith, our trust in the risen Lord. And, and on a day where we focus so much on the gospel, I just want to repeat this again. For anyone sitting here, you may know about God. You may know about the gospel. But until you have embraced the Lord Jesus by faith, until the gospel is your story, your song, and we get back to Paul, he just mentions the gospel and his heart is aflame with passion. He's got, I gotta tell you about who I was. I gotta tell you what God did to me. I gotta tell you about his grace that strengthens me. I gotta recite and recount for you gospel truth. That's, that's, that's the mark of someone who is a new creature. This Paul who is a blasphemer and a persecutor now just can't resist speaking the gospel, writing the gospel, praising God for his salvation. Thirdly, we have a gospel demonstration. So we've had the gospel power in the transformation of Paul's life. We've had the summary of gospel truth. And next, Paul speaks of a demonstration, a gospel demonstration. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so as we look at this demonstration, I get that word right out of the text, I want to look at the object. What is being demonstrated? I want to look at the subject. Who is viewing the demonstration? Who, for whose sake is this demonstration? And then the purpose. To what effect? That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the object. What is being demonstrated? The subject. For who? And the purpose. Why? Well, the object's right there in the text. To put on display Jesus' perfect patience. Literally in the Greek, Jesus all patience. Just, just the word for all, patience. 
And, and Paul says this is why God chose him. This is why God chose to give him mercy. In part, was to display something. You know how, you know how display works? You've, you've got a raised platform so that, so that whoever speaks here can be seen clearly. And so it's as if the Lord put Paul up on a platform to display something. And it wasn't Paul's greatness and it wasn't Paul's wisdom. It was the Lord's perfect patience. Patience in putting up with a blasphemer, putting up with someone who's attacking his church. Why would the Lord allow someone like Paul to stand by while Stephen gets murdered? Why would the living God allow someone to blaspheme the name of his son and drive around hurting up Christians? Why would he put up with that? And you can imagine Christians before Paul's conversion crying out to the Lord, stop him. Why are you letting this happen? And the Lord was patient. And the Lord was merciful. And the Lord was gracious. And in his perfect time, he converted Saul. In his perfect time, he brought him to faith. And Paul said this was to demonstrate in him as the foremost, his perfect patience. The Lord wanted to put his patience on display. And who's this display for? Well, here's the encouraging news. It's for us. The text says it's for those who will believe. So let me just track this back to the beginning of verse 16. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him. Well, that's us, right? At the time of Paul's writing, these people haven't believed. They were going to believe, and we are some of the people who are going to believe. Which is an amazing statement. Because what Paul is saying is in part, get this, in part, why did the Lord choose Paul? Why did the Lord in that time and in that way save Paul? Well, according to this text, in part for our sake. So that we might be able to clearly see displayed the Lord's patience. His all patience. That we might have an example for those who would believe in, in him in faith. So Paul was converted and saved the way that he was so that we could see something about Jesus. And what we're told we were to see is his patience. For what purpose? Well, the text doesn't say, but I think it's pretty clear. An example to encourage faith. But what Paul's saying is this. If God can save him, it should be clear to anyone watching. If the Lord can be that patient with him, if the Lord can reach down and save a persecutor, then he can save you. I don't care what you've done, how much grace you've trampled on, how far you think you are from God, what you did last week. Paul says he's an example Look, look to Paul. You haven't done worse things than Paul. And learn about God's patience and mercy. That even now, even today, he is reaching out and calling you to believe, to turn to his son and trust him. Learn from the example of Paul, God's amazing grace and patience. As long as you are drawing breath, there's an opportunity to believe. There's an opportunity to trust Christ. 
And Paul wants us to see that. The demonstration is of no effect if those who are supposed to see it don't see it. So Jesus is putting his perfect patience on display in Paul so that we could be encouraged to believe, to believe that God could save, yes, even you and me. Even with what I did yesterday, what you did last week, even with what I was thinking on the way to church, God can save me. His grace is sufficient. His gospel is powerful enough. His mercy is greater than our sin. That's the point of this passage. That Paul is a visible demonstration of God's patience. We saw that back in Acts when the church could hardly believe this guy was converted. And it comes back to how big is your gospel? The salvation of Paul stretched the gospel of the first century church, that's for sure. You mean this man who last week was was chasing, I just barely escaped from him last week, now I'm going to worship alongside of him today? That's how big the gospel is. Amen. And if you forget that, if you think some people are beyond saving, some people are too bad, or you're too bad, look to Paul. Look to this example and demonstration put down for us in the very life of the Apostle Paul. And all this then culminates in a doxology, in gospel praise. See, as Paul has mentioned the gospel in verse 11, and that leads him to, I got to tell you about who I was, and I got to tell you about what God's done for me. I got to tell you about my commissioning, and I got to recount the gospel, and I've got to point you to the grace of God demonstrated in me. Well, all that leads to praise. And again, if the gospel's got a hold of your heart, it won't be enough to study it. You'll have to praise him for it. That's one of the reasons why we've been adding in songs at the end of the service. I think there's a pattern in scripture that after we've seen truth, after we've meditated on truth, it is only right for God's people to respond, to praise him, to sing, to shout for joy. And so Paul enters into one of his doxologies here, which is simply a a statement of praise. And a doxology consists of two parts. Who the person is you're praising. You say something about them, praiseworthy. And then what they're deserving. So here it's who God is and what he deserves. Let's read it in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God... Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so let's take this a piece at a time. We could, we could talk about just this one verse for weeks and not plumb the depths. To the king of ages, this, this gospel plan, this salvation that Paul is exulting in was thought up and brought about by the king of ages. And, and Paul's living in a day where there are kings. He's, we saw in Acts, he's under arrest, facing a king, facing potentially Caesar. And so he's got the king of Rome, he's got the king of this little area, but his king is the king of ages. I just think that's pretty cool next to titles because Caesar was only the king of Rome for a couple of years. God is the king of ages forever. His kingship endures forever. His throne and his rule is universal and eternal. He's the king of ages and he is immortal, which means he cannot die. 
This is really tied up in God's name. I am who I am. Where Jesus says in John 5, as the Father has life in himself, which means God is self-existent. There's a life principle at work in him that has always been and always will be and can never be extinguished. He is the living God. He was the living God. He will be the living God. He is immortal. And he is invisible. Turn over to chapter 6. Paul picks up this thought in another doxology. Um, Paul can't go very far without busting out in praise for God. Paul can't go very far without breaking out in praise for God. 1 Timothy 6, 15. Pick it up in the middle of the verse. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God dwells in unapproachable light, which no one has seen or can see. He is the king of ages. He is immortal. He is invisible. And he is the only God. In a world of polytheism, this is a bold statement for Paul. And in the world today where you have your truth and I have my truth and your truth's no better than my truth, it's an equally bold claim. No, this is the truth. He is the only God. And if you think otherwise, you are wrong. You are wrong. He's the only God. And so as Paul highlights this character of God, his, his rule throughout the ages, his immortality, his livingness, if you will, is dwelling in unapproachable light. Well, the only fitting response, what is due him, what he deserves, is honor and glory forever and ever. Honor. He needs to be esteemed properly. He needs to be regarded as holy. He needs to have our allegiance, our love. We need to take him seriously. This is all tied up in the notion of honor and glory, praise, adoration. And he deserves it forever and ever. And, and there's a correspondingness here. As he is the king of forever, literally, the king of eternity, these praises need to go on for eternity. Because of his rule, because of his great honor, he deserves honor. Because of the length of his reign, the length of the praise is equally forever. We're to close our service now by singing a hymn based off of this text. Immortal, invisible. And just as our text ends with an amen, we will close our hymn with the traditional amen. So be ready for it. I just think it's so fitting that Paul cannot but talk about, think about the gospel without praising God. We're going to do the same. We are going to follow the pattern laid down by the apostle. And please stand as we sing, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise.